Welcome to the Welfare Culture Podcast, where we talk about all things Indigenous wellness. What's up, everybody? This is Chelsea, and welcome to episode three of the Welfare Culture Podcast. It's a beautiful 100-degree sunny day in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're hanging out in our office now with our daughter, Aloe, and we're super excited to bring you this episode today because you're going to get to learn something about us that you've definitely never heard before. Skukdash, everyone. This is Thosh here. Welcome to episode three. As Chelsea said, we're excited to share our little bit more about our personal wellness journey. And for me, I kind of found it hard to kind of talk about my story because I'm used to always talking about a vision in terms of health and wellness as it pertains to us as Native people. But so I had to really look at and think about um, the things in my life that I felt like I wanted to share. And so I do share about the tragic and untimely loss of uh, my brother and my sister. So that's going to be there at some point within my my talk there. And I share these stories, though, because these are things that we have as a family um, are healing from and have and have started our healing journey from. Usually I don't like to talk about things that are traumatic because I don't believe in spreading that that energy and but I feel like there's times we we share things about our life and maybe somebody's listening maybe you're driving maybe you're out there and you're listening and you can relate to something that we're sharing in our stories maybe you're going through something currently that some of the things that we are talking about is just speaking to you and maybe it's something that you needed to hear so I felt that was important to share about healing from grief and loss through our cultural value system so that's in there as well. And we hope that you enjoy these stories and that they speak to you in a good way. Josh and I don't often share a lot about our personal lives on social media because we don't want to make the welfare culture movement about us. It's not about us. It's about indigenous wellness as a whole. And uh, on the, at the same time, a lot of people wonder about us. They say, well, who are you guys? Where do you come from? Why do you care? And what do you know about wellness? And so we wanted to take this opportunity to, sh- to utilize this podcast to connect with our listeners on a deeper level and to tell you a little bit more about who we are and where we come from. And the goal is hopefully just to be able to connect on a deeper level. Maybe when you learn that we haven't always practiced wellness in this way, or we haven't always understood everything that we know about wellness now, maybe it'll make you feel like you have an opportunity to learn just like we always are. We're always learning. We're always growing we're always sharing and and trying to better ourselves. And so there's nothing wrong with feeling a little bit behind or um, not knowing where to begin on your wellness journey because we're all at different places. And so I guess we'll tell you a little bit more about um, who I am and where I come from. Um, I always say that my wellness journey and my entire life begins with my ancestors. And um, I come from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa on my mom's side of the family. It's a tribal nation in North Central North Dakota where I'm, where I'm a citizen of. 
in uh, where I lived for a short time when I was a little girl. And uh, my mom's side of the family still lives there. And it's a place I like to call home. And I also come from both the Cheyenne River and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribes, which is in what's known what's known now as North and South Dakota. And uh, my dad was born and raised on the Standing Rock Reservation in a town called Fort Yates. And that's where uh, pretty much everybody on my dad's side of the family still lives. And I was raised uh, for the first couple of years uh, of my life, mostly by my mom. She and my dad split when she was pregnant with me. And uh, she had already had my two older sisters. And so uh, she went through uh, a couple of years of being a single mom and going through that struggle and coming out of it really impressively. She uh, got her college degree at that time and uh, remarried to my stepdad. And so, uh, you know, thanks to my mom's hard work and resilience, uh, for the most part, I was raised in a pretty stable home environment uh, by a mom and a stepdad who put everything into um, keeping this uh, safe, quiet, and um, loving home for my sisters and I. I would go live with my dad in the summertime. My dad is a very different kind of parent. He is very... <laughs> fun, very, um, spontaneous and very, uh, creative and artistic and always had, uh, kind of the life of the party personality. And, um, it was always fun to go and stay with my dad. And, um, he was the kind of person that was constantly learning, constantly engaging in very interesting and dynamic discussions and speaking to us from the time we were children as though we were adults and really honing our ability to be critical thinkers and to have complex thought and idea. And uh, also from my dad is where I got my ceremonial upbringing. So from as young as I can remember, he would bring us to sweat lodges and Sundance and, um, that's where I obtained my ability to pray, my ability to connect with the spirit world and uh, to understand uh, who I am as a Lakota person. So I always appreciate that side of, of my dad's upbringing. And he also raised us with a lot of animals. We had many dogs and cats and we even had a pet bobcat that he rescued at one time and horses. Uh, we were always riding horses as kids and he was a cattle rancher as well and a business owner. So I got that side of my, uh, formative years from my dad. My mom, uh, eventually went on to earn her PhD. And so, uh, she really valued education. And so, uh, growing up in North Dakota, as much as I look back and, you know, love it now and love to go home for visits, I was always bored as a kid and I wanted to get out and I wanted to see more. And so uh, my mom really recognized my uh, intelligence and my ability to do well in school. And she encouraged me to look into Ivy League education. And I also had an older cousin, Erin, who is now the chief judge in the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And she went to Brown University. And so because of Erin, I was able to see, oh, okay, you know, people from my family, people from my tribe, we do go off to schools like that. We do go off to college. 
And so with that inspiration and encouragement in mind, I did end up going to Dartmouth College. And that's where I received my undergrad education in history and Native American studies. Um, Now, college, I look at as really twofold. On one hand, it was a time in my life where I learned to think critically better than ever before. Um, Obviously, my intelligence grew by leaps and bounds. It was such a challenge compared to the high school education I had from North Dakota public schools. Um, I just became so much more worldly through global travels to places like Morocco and Brazil and Spain and England and meeting friends from all over the world. But it was also a time where I really did not at all focus on what I would consider wellness now. So to backtrack a little bit, um, I would say that, you know, in my households growing up in both of them were a mix of good health choices and poor choices. Um, I ate a lot of processed, a lot of packaged foods. I ate a lot of fast food, not necessarily from my parents picking it up for me, but just from like being in high school and getting in the habit of going those places with my friends. Um, I had absolutely no idea the health implications of that type of food choices. And in terms of being active, that was a little bit more positive. I grew up playing pretty much every sport you could imagine. I wasn't very good at any of them, but I was always participating. Uh, I grew up dancing. Uh, I was a jingle dress dancer as a kid, something I would still like to get back to. And I was a ballet and jazz and tap dancer um, throughout childhood all the way through high school. And uh, my training in ballet was really important to me. It was a big part of my life and I was actually good at that. So that's kind of uh, my background in terms of being active and in terms of the food culture that I grew up with. The only time I ever ate indigenous or traditional foods would be like at ceremonial times or special occasions with my family. And I was never asked to cook because I was one of the younger ones in the family and I was a major tomboy and I just had no interest in being in the kitchen. And so, uh, yeah, I just, I would say I grew up like pretty disconnected from food. And even though my dad and my mom both always had a garden and had foods growing, I had no interest in that either. I can't pretend that I did. Looking back again, it's one of those things I wish I had paid a lot more attention to growing up, but I just didn't care about that stuff. Um, maybe also of interest, my grandma Thelma was the owner of the White Buffalo Super Value in Standing Rock, which is still in operation today. My uncle took it over eventually, and then he just recently sold it out of the family, but it was in our family for decades and decades. And so I grew up kind of a part of the grocery store business, and I understood um, a little bit about that. But um, yeah, I had no real interest in food or in indigenous foods. So in college, um, I was a partier. I loved to go to frat parties and drink with my friends, which was, if you know anything about Dartmouth College, it's a huge, huge part of Dartmouth life. And I just totally went with the flow. And that became my weekly activity. I didn't think about the ways that that was probably negatively impacting my academic career or my ability to thrive. I just went with the flow because that's what all my friends were doing. I always knew that 
there were people in my family and in my life who I loved very much who struggled very seriously with addiction. I have lost several family members due to addiction and uh, some of my family members have been incarcerated or uh, have become very sick. And um, I just tried to put that out of my mind as much as I can. I think that when you are in those younger years, you want to think of yourself as invincible. And I never made the connection between, oh, that could be my path or that could be where I'm headed now with this partying lifestyle. I didn't think about it that way. I just wanted to have fun. Inevitably, I ended up doing well at Dartmouth anyway. And I should mention that my education in history and in the comparative histories of indigenous people globally is something that continues to inform my work and my career in welfare culture. Uh, as we know, health is uh, a historical construct as much as it is something that is uh, a present day concern where we are at with our health as indigenous people collectively. Um, has everything to do with our history of colonialism. And so I'm very glad that I have a formal um, understanding of that through my education. And it's something that continues to uh, play a big role in my work as both a wellness advocate and as a journalist. So after Dartmouth, I got my first job in New York City. I was a uh, trial preparation assistant at the sex crimes unit at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Um, People always ask me if that was anything like Law & Order SVU. Um, I've never seen the show, but from what I hear, yes, it's exactly like that. We uh, handled uh, felony sex crimes, pretty much every felony sex crime that came into Manhattan, into New York County, we, we handled. And um, in that career, I figured out that I did not want to be a lawyer, so I didn't go to law school. I went on to get my master's degree at Columbia University in broadcast journalism. So by this time, it's my third year in New York City. I continue to party, continue to live that lifestyle, not really uh, making the connection between those choices and uh, how that could be impacting my academics. And then I remember one day um, having this moment of clarity. Uh, I woke up extremely hungover, which doesn't seem like a time that you would have a moment of clarity like that, but it just hit me like a brick wall as hangovers tend to do. I mean, I felt awful. Uh, I felt like I had been poisoned, which scientifically, if you're hungover, you pretty much have been poisoned. I was throwing up. Uh, it was just an awful feeling. I think it was that same day or maybe the night before uh, I had heard some bad news from back home and I won't go into detail of what that was, but I thought to myself, you know, these are my relatives. These are my family members going through this stuff. And who am I to think that I'm above that? Who am I to think that this fun partying in New York city lifestyle makes me immune to the negative sides of alcohol or addiction and so I said to myself, I'm done. And so that's when I quit drinking cold turkey. I quit the partying lifestyle. And as we know, when you quit a negative habit, you have to start a positive one. And so instead of drinking, I made fitness my habit. Now, time warp back to 2013, some of you probably remember that Instagram was relatively new at this time. 
Um, the native network on Instagram was still pretty small. And I think it was actually maybe even two years before then, maybe around like 2011, when I started following Thosh on Instagram, I found him and I thought that his photography was so cool. And I was like, oh my gosh, here's uh, another native that is, you know, has really similar interests to me, photography and art and um, just indigenous lifestyle stuff. And I was like, Oh, cool guy. So that's kind of how me and Thosh first got on each other's radar. I think from following each other on Instagram. So by the time 2013 came around, I had already been familiar with Thosh for some time. And, uh, we decided to meet up and hang out in New York city. I think he was living in either Phoenix or LA at the time, but he came out to New York to hang out with his friends. And so we decided to get together and uh, do a photo shoot together um, where I modeled and he took the photos and we really connected over our shared interest in fitness and uh, all that stuff. And as happens sometimes when you meet people in person, I became even better friends with him than I was when I had just known him through social media, I realized that we had an actual connection. I realized that we had a lot of fun together. We had a lot of laughs. And most importantly, we were passionate about the same things. And uh, I also liked the fact that he was such a gentleman. I was in a relationship at the time. He did not uh, approach me in that way at all. He was uh, just so respectful and so uh, fun to be around in a platonic way. And so we became very, very good friends after that point. And Thosh was also a person from the get-go who, uh, I think he had also recently um, quit the partying lifestyle and he totally supported my decision to do so and was excited to hear that I was on that same path. So I always look back and I'm really grateful that both Thosh and I uh, decided to pursue wellness lifestyle really seriously as individuals. It wasn't something that we had to influence one another to do after we got in a relationship. It was something that uh, we each had chosen on our own paths before we got together, long before we got together. Sapor Native Wellness Institute board member. So this is my story. I was born and raised in the Salt River community right outside of Phoenix in central Arizona. And you may have heard of us as called the Pima, but the original way we identified ourselves was the Autumn, the Salt River people. We also have a lot of other communities related to us. To the south of us, we have the Kuri Akamir Autumn, we have the Akchan Autumn, the Donna Autumn, Hiachid Autumn, so the Gila River, the TO, the Akchan people, the San people, all extending into Mexico, northern Mexico. Today, many of our people are scattered out in small communities there as well. So that's on my father's side there. My mom's side, they came from Oklahoma. Her father was Wajaji, and her mom was Seneca and Cayuga. 
the band that got relocated from Ohio, upstate New York area to Eastern Oklahoma. So we have some Europeans somewhere in our history, but I can't prove it. And so that is a little bit about all the different nations that I come from. And so growing up in Salt River in the 80s and 90s, we were really fortunate to be raised by the generation, which is my dad's generation, the 60-somethings who had came back from the tail end of the Red Power Movement. And it was mid late 70s. And they started coming back from traveling around native country. And they started asking our elders in our community, well, what is our songs? What is our cultural practices? Because some of these things weren't really available to them when they were younger. Most of the people that were following Christianity, Catholicism, as many still do today, which our people had adopted in the mid-1800s. And so the language was still prevalent within that generation. It was still being spoken. They, they had conducted church services in the language. But a lot of practices were, were they found out, original autumn ways were being held by small pockets of, of families. So they started reaching out to a lot of these elders in the community to teach them about the things that they knew. And over time, they did that. They revitalized the women's coming-of-age ceremony in the 80s. Then they had revitalized the young men's coming-of-age ceremony a little bit later on, late 90s, early 2000s, I believe. And one of the ceremonies that our family was involved with was a circle of men. And that's where I learned a lot of my values as a young man. I learned a lot of my place and my role. And within that, the spiritual leader, she always told us about the importance of, of keeping our, our minds spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally well and not to use alcohol, not to use substances. So we grew up hearing that a lot within that ceremony. And I was also really fortunate that my parents had put away alcohol early on. So most of my childhood, we grew up in, a, in a, an alcohol and drug-free home. And we had our issues. My parents had had their issues with their marriage that would come out from time to time with us. But for the most part, they really built this, this loving home for us. They really built something different that they didn't have for us. And my dad always took us out to the desert. He always took us hunting. He always took us fishing. He really made sure that we knew the land and he really appreciated the land was my dad's medicine and it was his way of healing. And as I started getting into my teens, I studied photography at an art high school and I even got involved with the hip hop scene and a lot of friends of mine, a lot of us res kids, we were actually were going to into, into the city and we were being inspired by what was happening within the hip hop culture. And we started breakdancing. We started a, a crew of our own and we traveled a lot. We would go all over to Los Angeles for things like B-Boy Summit, Freestyle Session and um, Culture Shock Camp in Oklahoma City and many other places. And I was also involved with the Salt River Youth Council. It was basically a, a council that modeled after our tribal council. So we had a president, we had a vice president, we had council members on there. And we would shadow our actual tribal council members. And we got to attend a lot of conferences like National Congress of American Indians, Assembly of First Nations in Canada. We attended National Indian Gaming Association. And we also attended, attended youth conferences such as United National Indian Tribal Youth and uh, Native Wellness Institute's Native Youth Gathering that used to happen in, in San Diego and still does to this day. So, And eventually I went into to study photography at San Francisco Art Institute in San Francisco on a full ride scholarship. I received the TC Cannon Memorial Scholarship. And I remember they announced it 
at one of our community gatherings that I was going to be going away to school. And so people were coming up and people were congratulating me and, you know, giving me advice. And the one of the spiritual leaders, she was an elder woman and spoke broken English, small woman. She came up and I remember she grabbed my hands and she said, she looked at me and I remember her face and her expression. And she said, never forget who you are when you're out there. I'll pray for you. And I, I really thought about that and she didn't have to say much. You know, when elders come up to you and they, they tell you things and they say it very simply, but they have this expression and they have this energy that they kind of emit. That's what I was receiving from her. When I was receiving from her that you're going to go to a place where you're going to be challenged and you're going to have to utilize all the tools that you were raised with to keep you grounded to mother earth, to keep you grounded to your, your values and your and who you are, your himadak, your way of life. And so eventually, I, sure enough, I got to the city and it was a big culture shock. Moving from the res, moving into San Francisco was something that I did not anticipate the amount of stress I would feel or the amount of challenges that I would feel. And it took me a while to find the native community. But in 2003, we got tragic news. I remember I was driving on the Golden Gate Bridge and I was headed into Oakland for something. I don't remember what. I was leaving the city, going to Oakland. I got a call from my mom telling me that my brother Stephen had been shot and killed by the police. And so I went home and we took care of him in the way that, that we do. The way that we do is all at them. And uh, grieved. We started our grieving process. And so I continued on. And this in, in, the, in San Francisco is the place where I was definitely challenged. That's where I first experienced alcohol. That's where I first experienced drugs. And remember when I was a young person, I was all against that. I was not even something that was never an option. I was so against it because of my upbringing. But somehow when I came into the city and became challenged, I ended up resorting to that. Later on, I moved down to Los Angeles and there I was living with friends who were from Arizona and other friends that I had made there in the city. And I got really acquainted with the native community there. I was doing photography, I was doing freelance. I was just hanging out, being a young guy in my 20s, having a good time. I also found the Autumn community there. We used to gather over at United American Indian Involvement over on 6th Street in Bixel. And we'd have potlucks and we'd get together. And one of the elders there, Virgil Lewis, would teach us Autumn Yonk. He would teach more of the language. And we would practice a lot of our songs and our, our socials and things like that. And these were, a lot of them were second and first generation Los Angeles born autumn. Never lived on the res in their entire life, but their family had moved to Los Angeles during the relocation era. And so these people were really committed to learning all they could because they were in the city. They didn't have the they didn't have the luxury of just being around a lot of the the knowledge or the songs and things. So when they were around it, they were really absorbing it and picking it up. And that really opened my eyes and I started to really realize the special things that I had had back home that I was raised with and that I needed to continue that. And so I continued to to share what I knew as far as the songs. And that made me feel like I was really contributing to something larger than myself. But I continued to go on. I continued to party and live this kind of double lifestyle. I would still come back to the res for ceremonies. I'd come back for family gatherings and partake. And then in 2006, we, we got more sad and tragic news. I remember talking to my dad on the phone and he was expressing to me, about how he had not heard from my sister and that she had usually turns up from time to time. And even though she was struggling with an addiction to meth, she would show up to my dad's house from time to time. 
and particularly around per capita. And she didn't, she didn't come around. And so he was wondering, I haven't heard from her, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of worried. He was telling me. And then some, I guess, weeks, months passed by. And finally he issued a, a missing persons report and they had found her two weeks later, they found her body. She was in a ditch in South Phoenix and her death was made to look like an overdose, but there was other reason to believe that it was a homicide and there was rumors floating around. And so her, her case was never solved. And so our family was definitely impacted by the missing and murdered indigenous women that's been happening to our women for a long, long time. And again, came home, we had ceremony and to take care of her in our ceremonial way. And one of the things that I always remember that I never forget is how, how families and community really come together and really come to your aid and to give love. And I remember at our house, when I came home, our house was full, all of our family was there. People had came from my other reservations to help us, to pray for us, to do ceremony. And there was food. People were always bringing food or cooking for us or cleaning. And that's just how we are. That's our way. And then when I think back to that, I think about that's, that's, that's community. That's himaduk. That's way of life. That's culture. The way our people come together and take care of each other during times of need. We're still practicing our way. We're thriving. And that love that people have provided was really important for our healing and wellness and it helped with our grieving and then consulting with a lot of our spiritual leaders about about the journey that her spirit was making and learning about how the place that she's going is a place that our human minds cannot even fathom we cannot even imagine the beauty of the place that they are no longer human they transform into something that's just beyond we can imagine and that they can come back and they help us. They answer our prayers. They guide us. And that was confirmed by many different spiritual healers that I had kind of met on my journey recently. They would tell me, oh, you have a brother and a sister that they're helping you out or they're following you. Or you have grandparents too. And I'll be like, wow. You know, so so many different spiritual healers and, and spiritual leaders that I've met throughout the way have all confirmed that. And then understanding and adopting those ideas rather than the dominant society's perspective about what happens in death has been really beneficial for, for my healing and my coping. But I was starting to become more conscious and aware. And by this time I was in my late twenties, I was starting to become conscious of things like our, 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 our total health. And growing up in Salt River in the eighties and nineties, I remember diabetes being so prevalent and I heard diabetes being spoken about a lot. And I even thought that diabetes was an autumn word because it was so prevalent. I thought that that's just something that happens to you. You grow up, you get old, and you get sick, and you become on di dialysis, and you you die. That's something that that's how prevalent it was growing up, and still is today in some ways. I thought that was normal, and cirrhosis was another one that I remember hearing a lot about. I remember hearing the adults talk and chatter, chatter. Yeah, so-and-so has cirrhosis, so-and-so is passing away of cancer. Definitely. And so there's these things that we were definitely faced with from a young age. And so by this time, I was definitely started to get into uh, more of, of exercising, more working out. And even in my teens, I quit drinking soda when I was in my teens. I quit drinking dairy when I was about 14 or 15. And then I quit eating fast food in my early 20s. 
And these are things that just kind of happened over time. And I, and a lot of it, I knew intuitively that this just wasn't right for my body. I was also examining how it was making me feel. I started learning how much sugar that was truly in, in pop. And so that's why I'd quit that as a teen as well. And then I got invited to come and be a part of Native Wellness Institute again and come and help facilitate. And I used to attend the conferences when I was like 14, 15, 16. And here I was later on, you know, 10 years later, being asked to come and partake. And a lot of the same people were still there. And so that's when I first started getting back involved. And that really helped with my healing and wellness journey, being around so many mentors and people who were about healing and wellness and understood how historical trauma has impacted. And then I started putting everything together, everything I thought back to being on the community and wondering why so many people were dying from diabetes or or lifestyle-related diseases or addiction or depression. And I started to really understand what historical trauma was and how it has impacted our people. And then I started to learn history, how the river was taken away and how that impacted the health because we were corns, bean, and squash people. And so when the river got taken away, the food went right with it. And we know that food is center of culture. So the food went and people became dependent. And many people starved during that time because they didn't want to take up the food that the government was providing for them. Refined white flour, hydrogenated oils, salt, sugar, all these kinds of things that were so different from the food that the people had been subsisting off of. And I was just getting out of a relationship that started turning unhealthy and it was a, a mutual thing. We parted ways and I really I finally put away alcohol. I put away that double life. And by this time I was about 30 and I started really getting into health. I started getting into functional training. I started really looking at all them foods and, and finding out how these were the true solutions and other real foods to a lot of the health epidemic because I was coming home a lot and I was going to gatherings and I was seeing all this unhealthy food being served at ceremonies and community gatherings. And I remember thinking to myself, this is supposed to be about healing and wellness and happiness. But here we are just serving highly refined sugary foods, refined carbohydrate foods, foods cooked in hydrogenated oils, trans fats, you know, muffins, bagels, cakes. Every time you go to a community event, there's all this stuff. And I thought, man, we have a high incidence of diabetes here. But why are we continuing to feed our people these foods that are going to continue to cause our health to deteriorate? And so this became something that I was very vocal about in the community. And I started making the connections between how, how functional training, eating well was contributing to a healthy development of our community and our culture. Because one thing too, being a part of the young men's circle, when I was a kid, there was like 40 guys that come out there. They'd all prep for ceremony. They'd all be there partaking. And then as time went on, then those numbers started to dwindle. They started to drop. And I started asking my dad, well, what happened to so-and-so? How come he doesn't come? How come they don't come anymore? Then he started to tell me, well, you know, so-and-so is now on dialysis. He doesn't have the energy to come out here. So-and-so is incarcerated. You know, he fell off the wagon. He's in jail for domestic violence. And I started to, you know, think about back then as a kid, why, why did that happen? Later on, I seen that. I seen how health was important for the preservation of our culture and vice versa that being a part of community, being a part of cultural practices, being self-actualized by learning our language, learning our songs, and being a part of community was actually healing. 
these things started to change my mind. I started to work more closely with Native Wellness Institute and on social media at that time. I was also very active on social media. This is before you can post videos on Instagram. I was just posting pictures of me working out and I was working out with a, a friend who was a functional trainer. And I saw, I started getting more and more into functional training. I, I got introduced to kettlebells in about 2007. And ever since then, I, I loved them and fell in love and was just trying all the techniques and trying all the alternative styles of training, like battle ropes, slam balls, all that kind of stuff. And was just really relating functional training to helping to preserve our culture because I was seeing that poor health was impacting the culture and looking at foods. And by this time, I'd quit eating bread and wheat and grains with the understanding that not a lot of us could digest them very well. Also with the understanding that we didn't have these foods in our diet previously as indigenous people and that they were partially responsible for obesity epidemic in addition to refined sugar and such. Instagram and seeing one of her pictures, I thought, well, who's this? You know, who's this person following me? I think she started following me first. So I started looking at her and looking at all her pictures. And I thought, wow, there's uh, this young, beautiful native woman that's in New York City. She's doing cool things. She's doing ballet. She's doing journalism. Is into art, into her culture. And I thought, well, that's awesome. And that was what social media was for me at that time. And especially on that time, I was just newly getting onto my healing and wellness journey. And I was connecting with other like-minded Native people. And so eventually, Chelsea and I had started to want to collaborate on a project. And we were talking about it. And I said, yeah, I go to New York City from time to time. I have friends there. And so one of my trips to New York City, we met up. We talked about these ideas of like, let's make some cool, fun content about Indigenous healthy lifestyle. And it just happens to be that she lives in New York City. And we wanted to kind of profile that and show that. So we did a photo shoot and they just turned out awesome. And we got like an awesome response. And a lot of people were inspired because she was a journalist. I was a photographer. Both were into indigenous healthy lifestyles. And we thought, yeah, we can make a social media account while we're just sharing this. And we thought that was such a great idea. But the more we delved into it, we start realizing it's so much more than just exercising and just eating healthy. It's all these other components that are really rooted within our culture already. So we were talking one day and brainstorming and says, we should make an initiative. We should make this thing that's about indigenous health and lifestyle and fitness. And so we started going on, come up with all these ideas. And somewhere along the way, when I was talking, I says that we, it's like, we have to be well for our culture. And then from there, we started brainstorming put things together. So we're definitely not ones to keep track of times or dates or anniversaries and stuff like that. But here we are four or five years later, and it's it's safe to say now that we have wellness in every aspect of our lives, in our relationship, in our career, and it's who we are as parents. And uh, as you've heard, you know, Dasha and I did not grow up with the most perfect lives or uh, the most perfect circumstances. Uh, 
we did grow up with a lot of wonderful things and good things that come from our families and our cultures, but also some hardships and some traumas. And um, I hope that it influences those of you out there listening to know that anybody can have wellness. Wellness is attainable for all people. And I hope that no matter what circumstance you're in, you feel like at some point a well lifestyle is going to be something that you can also say that you have. And what we always say is that there's no finish line to healing and that health and wellness is a journey. It's a journey that we're all going through. And it's about having the tools to be able to deal with a lot of the stressors in life and to deal with these kinds of things. And so as Chelsea said, we've had our upbringings and now as a family, as, as a young couple, as a young family, it is part of our family's teachings and the, the circle of healing and wellness that we've created. It's a part of that to be able to recreate and to make healthy lifestyle normal again. So it's always been a part of our goal to break unhealthy life cycles, just like the parents' generation before us did. They broken cycles and created new ones. And it can only get better, or it should only get better with every generation. And that's that's what we encourage all young families to do, is to normalize a spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotional well life again. We, when we break unhealthy cycles, we replace that with healthy lifestyles and cycles, healthy thinking and healthy network, as well as what we put in our food and how we treat our body. So the rest of the podcast is going to be business as usual. Dasha and I are probably not normally going to get too much into our personal lives. We really want to talk about indigenous wellness as a whole, and we want to offer techniques and tools so that everybody can adapt the lifestyle practices that we feel have worked for us. The next episode is going to be our very first interview. You guys are going to love this conversation with Jalene Joseph, the executive director of the Native Wellness Institute. We learn so much from Jalene and it was just an awesome experience interviewing her and talking to her all about everything she knows about wellness. So stay tuned for the next episode. It's going to be a good one. 